You're an amazingly good-looking bunch this morning. Looking out over you, I would think that God created all of you in his image. You are that good-looking. Who thinks that good-looking people like us should pray? Who believes that a good-looking God like we have should answer back? So we need to pray. It always reminds me prayer of, of the, the story of the pastor of a, a church out in the desert um, and they, there'd been no rain for two years. And so finally he got all the church together and he said, we should actually pray to God for rain. Do you believe that God can provide the rain? The congregation all goes, yes. He says, okay, let's pray. And they prayed for rain. And the next Sunday they came to church and he looked and he said, who's brought their umbrella? And nobody raised a hand. And he said, you hypocrites. Last Sunday you prayed for rain, but you didn't believe it. If you'd believed what you'd prayed, you'd have brought an umbrella because you'd have been believing that it was going to be raining. And sometimes I think when we pray, we need, we need to have more faith that God is actually listening and answering. So we're going to pray this morning. And I want you to believe that your prayer is actually going to make a difference. So Lord, we pray this morning that your word not only enters our ears and our minds, but it enters our hearts and our spirits and it actually affects transformation in our lives. And all of those who want that transformation said... Amen. Okay, don't know where that came from. Um, I was, we, we're going to be talking one final time about the prodigal son. So Luke chapter 13 and verses, I can't remember now because I'm not going to use any of them for this. Um, but we, we looked at the prodigal son through the eyes of the prodigal son a couple of weeks back. And then we looked at the story of the prodigal son through the eyes of the elder son. And now I want us to look at the whole story through the eyes of the father. Because I don't know about you, but the father doesn't get really a lot of mention. He's a, he's a, he's a powerful figure in the story, but he seems not to be affected by what's going on. Is that just me or do you get that feeling? I mean, he's, he's just there. He's the father. He's strong. He's compassionate. He's merciful. But he doesn't seem to be going through any great problems. He doesn't seem to have uh, any issues in his life that he's dealing with. The problems all lie with his sons. But if you, you look carefully beneath the surface, the surface of the story, you recognise that the father we're talking about in the story is actually a wealthy landowner and a respected member of his community. And what happens in the story is that in that society at that time, there was a great deal of importance placed on your status in that society, because that doesn't happen these days, of course. Um, and so if, if you can imagine with me, you've got this wealthy landowner who has influence. He could well be on a, a council or an, a governing body of some sort in his local area. And suddenly his neighbours, his colleagues, his co-workers, whatever, discover that he has given his inheritance to his two sons before he has passed away. And people don't do that. And so he's actually done something and people are looking saying, well, that's, that's, that's not how we do things around here. That, that's, that's unheard of. And the rumours start, you know, what's happened 
what, what's happened to make him do this? Has he, has he, has he got one of those um, diseases of, of the mind that he's, he's perhaps going crazy? And so doubt settles in people's minds. And then they hear about the fact that one of his sons has disappeared with half his fortune. Now, family was all important back then. The only way you were going to carry on your business and your family life was to hand it on to your sons. And suddenly one of his sons vanishes with half the family fortune. And so people start to whisper about, you know, this guy here, his son, the pe- the, one of the people that he's, he's relying on to carry on his, his trade, his, his lineage, has just, just vanished. And so people start talking behind his back, and then they hear news reports. They Google prodigal son and discover that this guy's in a foreign land buying prostitutes and, and cheap wine and, and, and all sorts of wild living, and suddenly the social status of this guy starts to drop. You know, he gave his money to his son and his son's gone off and spent it on wild living in a different country somewhere. What was this guy thinking? Can we trust his business dealings now? He's obviously got a screw loose. His, his social standing is such that his family has disgraced him. Perhaps we won't do a business with him anymore. Perhaps there are other people we can do business You know the discount we were giving him? Perhaps let's not continue that anymore because you know, we're worried about him. He's perhaps not as clever or, or as savvy as we thought he was. And then we hear that his son's completely lost the fortune and people start to think, well, has he got any money left? Can we, can we trust him? Is he a proper business person? Perhaps he shouldn't be on the business council. And so they quietly just vote him off. And then his son comes back and guess what? Instead of whipping him and beating him and telling him what a horrible son he's been, he then spends more money on him, gives him the best road, a ring for his finger, sandals on his feet, and throws a party. This guy is insane. He has no concept of human behaviour. Let's perhaps, when he comes past us in the street, let's just pretend we're busy with something else. Because who wants to talk to a guy who's that crazy that he would forgive the transgressions of this, this naughty son? And then, of course, you've got the older brother. He's going around town... Making things worse by saying, have you seen what my dad did? My youngest brother's come home, he's spent all this money. You know me, I've been slaving here. Have I ever got a fatted car? Has he ever thrown a party for me? No. And so the father is actually subject to all this unseen pressure from the townsfolk, from his business partners, from his colleagues around the place, that he is looked upon in this society in particular, with great disfavour because he actually stood for something that he believed in which went against social norms. So the father is actually standing here welcoming his son and his son doesn't recognise the pressure that his father has been under in all of that time just so that he could welcome him back home. So the father actually undergoes quite a... a, a, um, a change in his life because of what he's done and how society interacts with that. And so the interesting thing about this is that this isn't just conjecture on my part. If we go back to earlier chapters in Luke, we will see that leading up to the story of the prodigal son, Luke actually shows us how Jesus deals with these social structures 
in his own life and through the parables that he's teaching to show us how the path of discipleship differs significantly from the path the world would have us take. And so there are five things that we see happen to the Father that Luke describes in the previous passages that he has to fight against just so that he can be in a place to welcome his son back home. The first thing he puts up with, rigid traditions. Things that are there that encourage people to utter that phrase that we all love to hear, that's the way we've always done it. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 10, we have a situation where Jesus goes into a synagogue. And it says, on, a, on Sabbath, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She'd been bent double for 18 years. Now that is an evil spirit. And was unable to stand up straight. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you're healed of your sickness. They would have been good words for her to hear. He touched her and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He said, there are six days of the week for working. He says to the crowd, come on those days to be healed, not on Sunday. He's, he's got all worked up over the, the forms. You know, you didn't do it right. You know, you just wandered in here and got healed. That's not how we do things around here. This is the way we've always done it. And Jesus actually chastises him immediately and, and points out his hypocrisy, which wins him huge friends all over the place. When you point out people's hypocrisy, they love you for it. But he was so caught up in the forms and traditions that he'd lost sight of people. After all, people are the most important part of the kingdom of God. In fact, people make up the kingdom of God. There are no other parts to the kingdom of God apart from God. So Jesus' illustration pierced through all the pretense to reveal the meaningless behind tradition that has no purpose. So he fought against the rigid traditions, and the father in the story would have fought against the same things. That's not how you behave in our society. You do not forgive people. You do not give away half your inheritance. You do not show compassion above common sense. The second form of social pressure that he dealt with was name droppers. Is that, who's ever known somebody who does that? Yeah, how are you? I'm good. I know the Prime Minister. Hello, that's good to, good to know. And the Under Secretary of Defence. I had lunch with him the other... It's like, who are you? Not who do you have lunch with. And, and this, this happens in, in Luke 13.25. Jesus tells a story about people coming to a, a house. And it says, when the master of the house has locked the door, it's too late. You stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, but we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I don't know, who, don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. You thought, who, who is this cruel person? But what he's talking about are the sort of people who hang around you because of your reputation or your skills or something that makes them feel important. And the same thing happens 
in our society. People hang around other people because of their importance. And once they lose their importance, guess what? Their friends are nowhere to be found. And so Jesus is actually warning us about people who associate with him without commitment. There are some people who call themselves Christians. And one day they're going to come before Jesus and he's going to say, who are you? I don't know you or where you come from. Because they weren't committed to him. It's our origins, not our associations that actually count with God. We actually have to have the life that comes from God inside of us, which comes from a personal relationship with God, not just hanging around other Christians. Now, don't get me wrong. It's good to hang around other Christians because we learn from each other. But we cannot give each other what God can give us. And we want God to say, I know you. And to do that, we have to know God. So it's no good name-dropping say, yep, oh, I'm a member of C3 Church Nord, best church in the country. I go there every Sunday, um, hang out with the people. They're, they're a great bunch there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, only pro- they keep talking about God and a personal relationship. I'm not really down with that, but the rest of it's excellent, really good. Uh, hopefully there aren't, and I haven't offended anybody <laughs> saying that, um, but we need to actually be more committed to God than to our associations. We are the church of Jesus Christ, but none of us here are Jesus Christ. And our relationships with each other actually all depend on our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we can't just be name droppers. Yep, I know that place where they they know Jesus. We've actually got to know Jesus himself. The other thing he came across was the fact that people will exploit your weaknesses. Who here has any weaknesses? Only me? Okay. Um, we see in Luke 30, 13, 31, we get some of the Pharisees who rush up to Jesus and they say, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, go tell that fox I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Now you've got to think, Why would the Pharisees rush up to Jesus and warn him that Herod wanted to kill him? Because we actually know the Pharisees wanted to kill him. So the Pharisees weren't doing him any favours. It was almost like, you know, hi, just coming to see, by the way, somebody else is after you as well. And they wait to see the reaction. Has anybody ever done something to you like you're doing something and somebody says, you know that I read on the internet the other day that you can get arrested for that. Hopefully you're not doing anything that that's actually true for. But people say, yeah, is that strictly legal? Or do you think you can do that? I've heard of somebody who did that and it blew up. Or they'll come with all these, these rumours of what danger you might be in. Not because they're concerned for you, because they actually want to put fear into your life. You have plans and people say, oh, yeah, I heard of somebody who went bankrupt doing that. They're not interested in stopping you being bankrupt. They're injecting fear into your life because it makes them feel good. I'm an expert on this, so I can tell you whatever you're thinking is wrong. Whatever you think you can do, you can't because I know because I'm an expert. See, that makes me feel good, but it makes you all feel rotten. And not to mention the fact that I'm probably totally incorrect because I don't know anything and I'm not an expert. I hate to tell you, oh, just exposed my weaknesses. So 
The Pharisees who hated Jesus and were plotting to kill him were now hurrying to warn him of impending danger from Herod so that they could see how he was going to react to that threat so that they could actually change their approach to bring fear to Jesus and to his followers. So, and we get people in our society who are very good at seeking out your weaknesses and exploiting them. Who's ever seen the movie Entrapment? Great movie. Uh, nothing to do with what I'm talking about here, but we have, we have, we have a, a law in our, in our legal system which stops the police actually setting, up, setting you up to commit a crime and then arresting you for it. They cannot, they cannot set you up so that you do something wrong and then come in and say, yeah, we saw that, and arrest you. That's actually against the law. And, but the Pharisees tried that with Jesus. Luke 14.1 says, On the Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of the leader of the Pharisees. So you see, they were very careful. They picked Sunday. They picked the highest Pharisee that they could find, and they invited Jesus to dinner. And it says, The people were watching closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen, And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? And they're thinking, aha, we've got him just where we want him, and they refuse to answer. Can't can't either deny or confirm the rumours. And so Jesus touched the sick man, healed him and sent him away and then turned to them and said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? And again, they couldn't answer. Because you see, they'd set this up to embarrass him. They wanted to actually prove that he was doing the wrong thing by making him do the wrong thing in front of the highest authority that they could find. But the trouble is that Jesus did what they considered the wrong thing but he convicted them of the law that made it wrong and also convicted them of the fact that, again, they were, they were interested in a rule of law rather than interested in people. And so, again, he made them feel really good by pointing out their hypocrisy. Has anybody, I mean, has anybody ever had these things happen to them? No? Okay. Well, we'll stop it there. It's nearly 11 anyway. so Because <laughs> these are things we actually have to, to watch for because these things happen in schools, workplaces, even churches to some degree. And we actually have to know what these things are because we have to know what not to do as much as how to cope with what's done to us. The fourth thing that people do is try and upstage you. Luke 14, 7 says, this is at a dinner, Jesus, not the same one I don't think, that Jesus was invited to. And he noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honour near the head of the table. He gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honour. What if somebody who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. 
Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, Friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honoured in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you know what our main fear about that scenario is? That if we took the seat at the foot of the table, the host wouldn't come and say, we've got a better seat for you. Which should tell us something. That we actually think we're more important than we are. (laughs) But life is full of people who see their, their place in life in terms of how close they are to important people. And if they can change positions with you, they will make embarrass you to make you feel less important. The most important guests in those days, I mean, you could go to a banquet and you could rank the importance by how close they were sitting to the person at the head of the table. Now, these days in our Australian culture, that sort of thing doesn't matter. You just find a seat and sit wherever you're sitting because nobody cares about that sort of thing. But back in Jesus' time, that was actually, it could be a very embarrassing situation if you found yourself in the wrong seat. So we're not, the warning for us there is that the spotlight isn't where Jesus wants us. He doesn't want us to look important before man. He wants us to put God before man as important in our lives. We're not here to look better than other people. We're here to look the best we can before our God. And the last thing that we, we see when it comes to social behaviour is a simple one. It's choice. What do you choose to do with your life? How do you choose to interact with people? Luke 14, 16, Jesus replies with this story. He says, a man prepared a great feast, sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began to make excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Here's a good excuse. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. (laughs) Sounds like... Somebody on carsales.com, I've just bought a Mustang and I've got to go and try it out. Got this Celica I've got to test out on the road, or an MX-5. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, that's actually a good excuse, isn't it? That's a pretty good excuse. I, I might pay that one. But you see, in Jesus' story, an invitation had been extended. And even, even the Pharisees, even, even the game players of society had been invited. And yet the invited guests made excuses. And he's exposing them. He said, he's saying to the Pharisees, I've, I've invited you, the same as everybody else, into the kingdom of heaven. Because the, the invitation is open to everybody. It doesn't matter whether we actually are people who have those social weaknesses or are subject to them or or whatever it is, the invitation into the kingdom of God is made to everybody. But the thing is that all of the people that the banquet runner 
organised, I mean, the banquet organiser and invited, said that they couldn't come. So he sends his servants out and asks anybody into the street to fill up the table. Half the time, most of the people we meet are too busy to do anything beyond what they're doing now. They're too busy involved in work, play, sport, whatever it is, to respond to Jesus' invitation to life. See, the gospel invitation goes out to the whole world, but not everybody who's invited accepts the invitation. That's a fact of life that Jesus faced and that we have to face. But the thing is, if you receive it, you're welcomed into the kingdom of God. If you don't receive it, the door gets closed. And those people are actually excluded from the banquet. It's interesting how Luke illustrates in this, in this chapter of the gospel the experiences and conversations that he has mimic the strategies that people, even in our society today, use to gain advantage. See, the attitude and the actions of the father in the story of the prodigal son towards his son would have left him vulnerable to all of those strategies. He would have suffered because he went against social norms, traditions that had no meaning. He would have suffered because he would have lost his authoritative position. People who drop his names, I know such and such. Yep, he's a good mate of mine, would have said, yep, um, who, who, who are we talking about again? Who's he? They don't know him anymore. He'd have suffered from people exploiting the fact that his fall from, from grace in his society left him open to weakness. They'd have taken his business from him. Yet, yeah, well, perhaps you shouldn't deal with him. Did you hear what happened to him? His son took half his money. He's probably not reliable. Perhaps I can give you a better deal than he can. And so people were exploiting his weaknesses. Whether he was trapped or not, you don't know. But when somebody's down and out, it's very easy to add to their fear by saying, yes, well, I can see your business has gone downhill. Some of your customers have, uh, have left you. Perhaps that's because of the way you're acting. Perhaps you should change your behavior. Perhaps you should think the way I think. Perhaps you should do things the way we do things. And so they add fear into his life. And the, the greatest thing, they'd have thought, great. He's made a fool of himself. When we go to the governor's ball, he won't be sitting at the main table anymore. I can perhaps grab his seat because he's obviously not going to be in favour. And so people are looking to upstage the father. And then people just make the choice. They look at what he's done and they say, well, that's wrong. I'm not going to accept what he's done. I think it's the wrong thing. I'm, got, I'm going to have nothing to do with him. And so the father was under a great deal of pressure. And we think of the father, I mean, my thought is that the father in the story is Almighty God, our father in heaven. No? Just me. But then I thought again, and I thought more than that, it's actually Jesus, not just our father. He's talking about himself as much as his father in, in heaven with this, because these are the things that Jesus put up with. See, the father sacrificed his one and only son so that those that believed in him would have eternal life. God the father sacrificed 
some more than we'll ever sacrifice. And so the, the impact that the father has in this story is hidden, but is incredibly powerful. There are hidden things that affect him, that affected Jesus, that affect us. And he points out very clearly that if these things are in your life, it's hard to be a disciple because the way of discipleship is very different from the way of the world. Now, if we are attacked by any of those things, then we know how to react. But the danger is that we look at those things and we see that that's a normal part of life. And part of the, the message of Luke here is to say, if they are part of your life, you need to get rid of them. We need to be people who don't indulge in the social behaviour that he describes in these stories. We actually have a responsibility to God to be a pure of heart, pure of action, pure of thought, pure of mind when we come to dealing with other people. The story here is that the kingdom isn't made up of social behaviours. It's actually made up of people with a heart for Jesus Christ. We meet a world whose hearts are different to ours. And I think the temptation is to use the strategies of the world the same way they do. But the Father stood firm and he was just waiting for his son to come back. He ignored everything that was going on, everything that had happened in his life for the chance to redeem his son. And that's how Jesus feels about us. We have a chance to be redeemed. We have a chance to be a disciple of Jesus Christ by casting aside those things and taking on a different attitude. And the first thing we have in that is choice. We actually have a choice to make. We don't want to be name droppers. We don't want to be those guys that hang around church because it's a good vibe, it's good coffee. You know, they talk about good life skills. But we stop at saying, well, okay, I need Jesus in my life. We actually need to make that choice first in what we do. So I want to do that right now. I want to give people a, a, an opportunity to make a choice. If you haven't made that choice here this morning, we actually need to make a choice that we're not hangers-on. We're not name droppers. We're not people looking for a, a social interaction. We're here to actually connect with God. And we do that simply by acknowledging that he is our Lord and Saviour and that we want to be one of his children. And we can do that with a simple prayer. After all, as I said earlier, prayer is a conversation. We pray to God, but we expect God to listen. If we're praying for rain, we should come with our umbrellas. If we're praying for salvation, we should come with our hearts open, ready to receive God's Spirit. Can I just get you to close your eyes for a sec? And while everybody's eyes are closed, nobody's looking around, just in a private moment, I want you to think, if you're here and you have never given your heart to Jesus Christ, I want you to examine your heart, to examine whether you can feel God calling you to a life with him. You may have done it before and you realize that 
You may have answered that call, but you're certainly not walking as a disciple of God. Just like the father and the prodigal son, God welcomes each and every one of us back when we fall away. If that's you this morning, I'd love to invite you to put up your hand as well. So if either of those things apply to you, that you haven't ever accepted Jesus into your heart before or you want to re-accept him to start changing your life once more to a life with Jesus, while nobody's looking around, every eyes closed, every head's bowed, could you raise your hand for me so that I can see that? I'd love to pray a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart this morning. Just lift it high so that I can see it. I'd love to pray with you to bring a new life, a new start, a new beginning into your life. Awesome. You can open your eyes and can I ask you just to stand? Now, I went through a a list of social behavior that often acts in interactions with people to put people under a a lot of stress. And in some ways, if we we rolled all that up into a ball and and extracted a word out of it, the the word that would probably come to mind today if it was going to be a headline in a newspaper is bullying. And so I, I want to pray for some people this morning. If, if you're in a, a school, a workplace, uh, a university, um, whatever your, your situation during the week, and, and you are surrounded, well, hopefully not surrounded, but if you are somebody who is influenced by any of those things, you have people who are constantly looking to exploit your weaknesses, people who would upstage you in an instant if if they thought that you were going to make a mistake. Or people who would perhaps badmouth you behind your back. Or people who come and instill fear into your heart, not because of any real problems, because they just wanted to keep you in your place. If you suffer from any of those things, if you have suffered, or if even, I guess, if you work with somebody you know who perhaps doesn't have the strength to cope with those things, I want you to come out of the altar I just want to pray a fresh spirit over your life. Because those things, I can't pray that those things go away. But we can actually be stronger people. We can actually live the life that Jesus wants us to live, to be an example to the world that we don't, we don't fall for those things. We can actually be like Jesus. We can answer from our heart. We can answer truthfully. We can be people of Christ without falling into those traps and we can succeed in the world despite those things if there's anybody here who has suffered from those things who struggles with people around them who do that sort of thing I'd love to invite you to come out the front I'd love to pray for you pray with you to bring a spirit of encouragement into your life
Can I get everyone to reach their hands out for these people? I'm just going to turn my microphone off here. like you need to take a deep breath. Am I not on again? I am? I'm just talking quietly. Okay. Just a couple of reminders before we finish that prayer and worship is here in this hall, 7.30 Wednesday night. It's going to be an awesome time, so come along to that. Uh, don't forget, you need if you've got kids in C3 Kids, you need to sign them out um, in the next 10 minutes or so. And uh, if you want prayer for anything at all after the service, there will be people here for the next 10 or 15 minutes uh, down the front by the altar here who would love to pray for you. So if you need prayer, take advantage of that and uh, come and grab some. Uh, otherwise, uh, love to catch you up, up with you for a coffee in our cafe. Have an awesome day.